You're listening to the Seaworthy Podcast, Episode 7, Segmenting Users for Better UX. Seaworthy is a podcast about building successful software. Today we're talking about using segmentation to design better experiences and using Slack bots to serve your teams with Pete Bernardo of 352. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm excited to have a special guest on today. Welcome, Pete Bernardo, head of product at 352, an entrepreneur as co-founder of Frank, a rapid and open anonymous communication tool for your organization. Pete, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, and you're uh, you're in Atlanta now, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in Atlanta. Uh, I'm home today, so I didn't have to brave the traffic. It took me a little over two hours yesterday to to get uh, to work and back home. So I said, not today. Yeah, not today. Is that uh, is that pretty common for Atlanta traffic? No, yesterday was raining a bit and there was like a couple big accidents. So um, it just sucked the life out of me uh, by yeah. the time I got to work. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just work from home uh, for today. Yeah, I can imagine that's a, it's a pretty big momentum kill to, your, to the start of your day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so can you give us a little background on who you are and how you really got into the design and business space? Sure. Um, I'm actually originally from Miami. Um, like you said, I'm, I'm now in Atlanta. And I actually went to engineering school in Miami. Um, but uh, kind of all through my life and, and kind of especially uh, all through college, um, I always gravitated towards building things and, and designing things. I, I think... I can remember if, if anyone ever said to me during college, and um, does anyone know how to do a, a website or build a website, I, I kind of always raised my hand because um, I, I just loved it. I loved the idea of, of creating. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of college, kind of a, a kind of a critical moment for me was I did an internship um, with this company in Miami. Uh, they're actually called Small Company. Um, and uh, they had built a number of products. Or they had been essentially like a consultant um, in, in a couple different industries over the years, uh, building uh, digital products. But, but typically, this was before the, the web um, and kind of the single-page single, uh, single page apps um, existed. Um, so they were doing a lot of like desktop-style uh, applications, uh, specifically um, for people that were on the Mac, um, interesting enough. Um, and, and, and the guy who founded Small Company is this guy named Albert Haram Alvarez. And, uh, Albert um, had always, through the years, um, been giving workshops on UX um, and thinking through product strategy and kind of thinking through the experience that the end users have with whatever you build. Um, and so I kind of like just got lucky with this internship um, and Albert had this slant with whatever he had me do where it was very much put myself in the shoes of, of the end user and really think through the flow of whatever we were building. Um, and at the time they were rebuilding kind of their their um, flagship product that they have, which was focused like on um, PR agencies. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was very much thinking through how uh, a person in a PR role and kind of some, some other different roles would use their application that was being built um, from the ground up and then giving that feedback uh, to him and, and the development teams um, as they build. Um, and so the, you know, those, that combination of always wanting to create and design uh, in conjunction with um, learning, learning from him kind of always put this itch uh, in me to um, kind of to think through the products we build and, and kind of, you know, to think through product and always be thinking about that angle. Yeah, that's great. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time period and, and when that was? Yeah, it was, this was right around uh, probably early 2000s. Um, I worked with them and uh, right around, you know, at the time, Macromedia, uh, had had Flash out for a while, and I had been doing a bunch of Flash stuff, but then they started pushing Flex, which was um, these rich internet applications, um, which is, you know, early uh, what React and Angular now are, are pushing hard on. Um, but th it's an interesting time because it's posts like HTML and, and um, you know, standards thinking coming out, but it's pre- um, you know, they, they, they only went so far because when, when, when Apple launched the iPhone, all that stuff died. 
Yeah, that's true. I remember, you know, so much of what I used to do. And as I was, you know, starting, I think I started designing in like 2003, um, you know, was was flash based, you know, those <laughs> didn't really know a lot about action script, but could piece things together. Um, yeah, it was from it that was, side. Yeah, was, I mean, I, I often like look back at that time thinking man, some of that, some of the stuff you're able to pull off today, which is so much um, easier back then. Um, but you know, we didn't have the environment like it is today where there's so many different devices. And um, back then you were just thinking about how's this thing going to look on a 15 inch monitor that someone's uh, getting to your website with on a Gateway 2000. From, I guess from where like I came up, I started more on the visual design side, you know, you starting on the UX and, and really, you know, the product focus side, the, the user side. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe how, you know, how your roots played played a big role in, in where you are now and um, yeah, maybe more about, about 352 and, and your role there? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, um, you know, I think most, uh, not most designers, but I, I think there's always a, um, a propensity to think like you have to go through design school and um, you have to have that, that formal education. And, and I know a lot of great, obviously a lot of great designers that are self-taught, um, but, but for me, having the angle of um, engineering and, and thinking through, like having the ability to think through structurally what the, what the business logic of anything we built, um, mm -hmm. you know, did, um, I, I thought it was always really powerful for me because uh, focusing on the UX and the experience of things, I, I could always bridge that gap between um, working with kind of a, a pure visual designer um, and then kind of a, someone who is was positioned to, to build the back end of things. Um, which is, it's, it's interesting that, that you ask about 352 and, and kind of me talking in, in that frame. That's kind of what 352 has been built on over the years. We, we um, I think, have this interesting model of we put together uh, six-person teams that are balanced between design and, and back end. Um, and they're dedicated teams, so think of them like little boutique uh, web design agencies, web development agencies, um, but they're all within one organization um, because right. they stick together. These teams stick together. Uh, and what ends up happening is a client will come to us and say, you know, we want to build this product, um, but we either don't have the internal resources to do it um, or uh, we don't like how we've done it in the past. Um, and so what they end up doing is they, they, they contract uh, with one of our teams um, and uh, that team is fully dedicated to that client. So that team only works with that client um, for weeks on end. Um, mm -hmm. And they take a very iterative approach um, using Agile and kind of just lean and, you know, lean from a development perspective, but lean from also a UX and design perspective. Um, and, and we build these products from the ground up and typically we're paired with like a subject matter expert that's on the brand side um, and, and uh, th they work with the teams. For me at 352 and kind of what my role is there now is I, I eventually went from being a designer there um, to I got into what we called at the time information architecture, which, which honestly is, is what we should have called or, or what, would what we would now call kind of uh, interaction design or kind of UX um, where we're thinking about the flow of something and, and the reasons why we're approaching it as opposed to like um, the pixels or, or the visuals on it. Um, right, and then I, strategy. I, yeah, and, and then I eventually ran the design and UX teams. So for context, 352, um, we're, we're right around uh, 70 people. Um, and because of that structure I, I talked about where there's a healthy balance between design uh, and development, um, you know, there, there's 20-ish, 30-ish uh, designers, uh, you know, front-end developers uh, typically get looped under design for us. Um, uh, and, and so now uh, my role at 352 after having led the design and UX team, now I'm actually uh, tasked with building out our own products. Um, so if we, we went for a long time building out products uh, just for clients, um, and we always had this aspiration, maybe, maybe falsely, but we always had this aspiration, like, let's do it for ourselves. Um, and so a few years ago, we said, you know what, Let, let's do it for ourselves, but let's do it in a, in a, in a way that uh, mitigates the risk. Um, and so we started, um, we laid out a strategy and, and a few years later, 
that strategy um, included um, having a dedicated product team, which is what now I, I lead at 352, um, building our own internal um, products. Yeah, that's exciting. So is that, is that a team of six then? Uh, actually, we're, we're taking a really lean approach. So the, the way we're approaching products, um, you know, it, it evolved. So uh, the strategy early was we, we started doing these internal hackathons. Um, and, and the hackathon started very loosely, like um, uh, build whatever you want, um, to eventually they have, uh, we, we did them annually, to they eventually evolved um, into having themes, and, and um, those themes involved, you know, building product. And so that was kind of the initial strategy, is like, let's leverage our teams where we're going to give them a week to build kind of a, a loose prototype. We'll see what... Um, you know, what comes out of it. Uh, and if something has a little bit of traction or, or seems to work, uh, we'll, we'll build a product around it. And it was interesting. We had a couple that, like, kind of took off. Um, just there were, there were little ideas. We, we did this thing called Hex Invaders that got picked up by Designer News and, and probably had hundreds of thousands of people looking at it. Um, we did this thing called Dungeons and Developers. Um, so we did these, like, loose um, ideas in the early hackathons that just gained a lot of traction. Um, uh, and then eventually we started building things that were more focused on actual real products that we could monetize. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and now that some of those have had success, um, I have a, a dedicated team um, that's made up of uh, marketing and, and development and design. Um, it's a smaller team. It's right around four people. Um, and we just take a lean approach to maintaining and then building new products uh, to market. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, and one of, you know, one of the big products that you guys work on, and, and we use it here at, at Headway, um, and we've used it with other other teams and, and product teams that we work with, um, is planning poker. Yeah. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, about planning poker, what it is, and, and sure. what it's for, for those that aren't familiar? Yeah. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I, I often get, like, I actually had a guy reach out to me this week that um, told me he played Hold'em, and uh, he, he spoke Spanish and wanted to translate our site to Spanish, and, and um, that, that uh, you hear poker and you, you immediately think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game, um, <laughs> right. or it's a, it's a poker game. Um, but no, planning poker is actually um, this technique uh, that, that was created uh, by this gentleman named Mike Cohn, who's... Um, big in the Agile and Scrum community, uh, and it's um, it's actually a, a, a physical game uh, that you play with your software team, uh, where you, um, if, if you've ever done Agile and Scrum, it's this whole principle of um, you need to uh, relatively estimate out the size or the effort um, of the individual stories or, or tasks, if you will, um, that you need to accomplish in a two-week sprint. Um, and so the way teams do that is they typically use uh, a they do this planning poker session um, where they'll, they'll take a, it's called a Fibonacci sequence and it's all about relative sizing. Um, and you basically say, if you, let, let's think about it in, in terms of t-shirts. Um, this story uh, is uh, extra large um, and this story over here is a small. Um, and based on his, history, um, the, the team's history, you're able to understand um, how many stories you can handle of, of different sizes. Um, mm -hmm. And so what we ended up doing is um, we got in touch with Mike um, and we, uh, we, had built, we had built an online version of uh, his physical game. And, um, and, and so Mike gave us the trademark, uh, trademark to Planning Poker and now we run PlanningPoker.com and it's, it's our product that's out on the market. Um, and it, it's, to me it's terribly interesting because software is pervasive now across so many different corporations that you wouldn't think have software teams. Mm -hmm. um, so Planning Poker is, right now it's used about, it's used on average by about 6,000 Scrum Masters um, a month, and a Scrum Master in Scrum is, is um, what, if, if you're not familiar with Scrum, what you would potentially call project manager, though their values and their mentality is very different than a typical project manager. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's used at companies like John Deere to an obvious one like Microsoft. Um, so it's just really neat where you see all these companies using 
this tool uh, for their software teams that honestly is just um, you would never expect to have software teams. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're focusing on building on building planningpoker.com and you use, um, you know, you guys use Intercom. And I think we've had a couple conversations online about that. But you've recently written an article on Medium about how you guys use Intercom to segment and communicate with customers on there. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and just that keeping that path open um, yeah, to sure. the customers? Yeah, one, of the, one of the reasons for us to pursue our, our own internal products has always been to have kind of a, a test bed of process and technology um, that we could then pull back into the, the pure services side of the business, um, you know, when we work with our clients. Um, and so Intercom and, and some of these other tools we use uh, allow us, you know, they're, they're, we primarily take stabs at them to understand would they benefit our clients beyond how much do they benefit the products we use. Uh, and Intercom uh, has just been one that I've been recommending over and over um, for a while now uh, to our clients. Um, and so I wanted to write a, a little bit of a piece on how we leverage Intercom um, because I think at first glance, um, I, I, people see Intercom and they think it's a chat tool. Uh, they, the visuals of it just, it, it looks like a chat tool. Um, but that's the, if you think about it, that's like the medium that you're interfacing with people. Uh, the, the tool itself is so much more. Uh, so for me, I wanted to kind of highlight different ways we use it. And, and for us, obviously, we handle it as, you know, support chat. People will tell us uh, this, I don't understand how this works, and we'll handle it. We use Intercom to handle those kinds of conversations, uh, which I think our users really like, this idea that they're not submitting a contact form uh, with a, uh, hey, it's a support ticket, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a real time, it tells them I'm typing um, and I can get feedback uh, that doesn't require the back and forth of email or someone logging into the system. Uh, but then beyond support, I mean, we leverage it to, uh, to segment our audiences based on kind of their interactions with the application. And, and to me, that's kind of the root of why Intercom and Drift and some of these other tools are so special is because I can work with our software team to say, um, I have a hypothesis that, um, that users who perform this action um, are more inclined to refer someone or to, to upgrade to one of our paid accounts. And, mm -hmm. then we start, and then we start tracking that action. And so for planning poker, um, think of planning poker having a model like very similar to GoToMeeting. Um, there's hosts that start a game and, and then there's people that join that are players. Um, or, or participants in a go-to meeting or participants in, in the game for us. Um, and so for us, understanding how many times a game has started, how many times people took that action, how full a game got, like how many participants are there, that's, like, that's great data because we use that inflection point of team size um, to promote our premium features and our paid plans. Mm -hmm. um, and with Intercom, I'm able to do that. I know how many times someone started a game, and I know how big uh, that game got, how many participants there were. Um, I know how many times they ended a game. And, and so if you think about those three things, um, I'm able to shoot messages to individual users that have started a game uh, within the last uh, 48 hours. And um, I'm, I'm able to wait till the game has ended. And and I'm able to be very specific about knowing that this user had a game that reached a certain size of, of participants. Um, and so that laser focus on those individual users allow me to have a laser focus in my messaging. Mm -hmm. uh, to say, hey, I noticed, um, I noticed you've been playing a bunch lately. I noticed your games are getting a little bit bigger. Um, I think you'd really value um, our premium plans. Here's a coupon. Give it a try. Um, and if you don't like it, you know, it, it expires in 30 days kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. or it rolls back. Um, and so that, that ability to be very targeted and not have like a shotgun approach to discounts or a shotgun approach to coupons has been like ultra effective for us. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I love Intercom. Um, it, it gets a little bit of pricey if you're doing a freemium model. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I plan to write another post about kind of some tactics we're using where we leverage MailChimp um, and Intercom together um, because just the, the pricing difference, uh, MailChimp is just better for um, large groups of people that maybe aren't as active, while Intercom is very 
targeted at like those people that are always taking action within your application um, that, that haven't gone away. Um, and so that combination has worked really well for us. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen a few other posts um, similar to that. Um, you know, u- utilizing MailChimp on there. With the, you know, with Intercom, it's, it's so good, to, like you mentioned, and much more effective to reach out to people when it's timely and something's actually actionable versus just blasting something out into, you know, into the ether and, and hoping people respond. You know, understanding your customers, what they're doing, how they're using it, you know, team dynamic and, and team size. Yeah, and and for me, it's like, it's it's beautiful trying to run, you know, trying to build a product, and having you know, my background in terms of thinking through the flow and the strategy of an application. But then, uh, you know, the the beautiful part to me is is the data to understand how people are using the application and being able to segment them into different groups in my head, and saying, well, this is what's really, this is what I should be talking to this group about. And this is what I should be talking to this different group about. And it's not just marketing; it could be uh, education on how the application uses, uh, how the application works, based on how I'm seeing them use the application. Um, so, you know, the, in in the past, I think we we would just get into this habit of sending, let's do a drip education to everyone that's signed up in the last seven days, and and we'll on day 14 you get this message, and on day, you know, day 17 you get this message. But um, that you know, prescriptive approach for everyone just isn't reality. Like you're going to have people that know how to use the application out of the gate and you're going to have people that um, have no clue what it is um, and just move at a different pace. Um, And so being able to adjust that um, based on the actions that people take is just ultra powerful to me. Intercom is is very powerful. If you haven't checked it out, definitely um, go and do that. Um, the big thing that I like about Intercom is is really this whole um, resurgence, I guess, of their jobs to be done framework that they've used to kind of market and build their product in ways that um, people are switching to it from, you know, certain things like Olark and different chat apps. And I think that's where they're really starting to uncover the value is figuring out, you know, why people um, are, are switching, you know, to certain products and why people use them and, and what flows along the way, you know, do they need to be kind of helped along? And I think, you know, Intercom is going to be doing, you know, a lot bigger things. They, they have an ebook as well that they released about jobs to be done. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Pete. Um, yeah, I am. Clay, Clay Christensen. Um, you know, a, a few years ago I met um, John Lax from, from T. Hannon Lax mm-hmm. um, shortly after Facebook bought them. And John is, John is like a huge, huge, huge believer in jobs to be done, um, and he had turned me on to it. Um, and it, and it, um, we, we leverage jobs to be done uh, in conjunction with value proposition design when we're thinking about a new product. Um, yep. And so part of value proposition design, if, if um, you've never heard of it before, it's this idea that you align kind of the, the customer's jobs to be done, their pains and gains um, with your products, pain relievers and gain creators and the actual functionality of the product. Um, and until you align those things, until you make sure your uh, pain relievers and your gain creators match up with the pains and the gains of the customer, uh, you won't have a fit um, um, right. unless you align those. Um, so yeah, jobs to be done and kind of approaching it from what does the user want to accomplish is just big into our thinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Likewise, and so you mentioned Clay Christensen. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a really cool video of him um, uh, one of his lectures or short lectures about, you know, just the milkshake story, um, mm. you know, and how they did that uh, analysis with a, a fast food joint. I think it was McDonald's. It might, it might not have been. But, um, yeah, thinking about the jobs to be done even for physical products and, and other things, you know, how do we build a better, uh, build a better milkshake? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the milkshake one is, is awesome. Um, there, there's a, uh, there's a, um, white paper or, or kind of a, a doc out there called uh, Marketing Malpractice. Um, and it, it highlights kind of uh, the, this milkshake story. Um, and, and so I, I won't get into it, but it, it's so interesting that you could take something like a milkshake uh, and think about it in terms of like, what job are people hiring this milkshake to do? Um, exactly. and it's just, if, if you haven't read, uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of this before, I encourage you to look it up. It's called Marketing Malpractice. Uh, I think it's a, a HBR uh, article. Um, and then 
I, I haven't seen the video that you're referencing, but I'm, I'm sure it talks about the same story. Um, but it's, it's a milkshake, and you can apply it to kind of product development and product thinking. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the, the, the short of it is that, you know, they did an observational study of people buying milkshakes when they bought them, who they were with, what their car size were, and they, they realized that people were hiring milkshakes to, um, one, fill them up on the way to work, and, and two, uh, you know, something that, that's quick that they could hold with one hand. They didn't have to eat. You know, they're usually in the car. And, and Clay Christensen is, um, you know, the one, I think he's the one who wrote that HBR article mm-hmm. as well. But he goes through and explains that, and, and we'll we'll link that. But, yeah, a lot of good, um, really good thinking and um, stuff. And that's that's something that, you know, has been around for a while, but I think is, you know, with Intercom and some other big, you know, product companies that are focusing on jobs to be done, not only from a marketing side, but from their product side and, and marrying those two together, starting to see them gain a lot of traction because when you align what your user wants to do with what you offer, um, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of good that comes from that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So one of the other products that, that you kind of started on your own, um, is called Frank. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what Frank is and where the idea came from? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a two part on, on, um, why we came up with Frank. You know, Frank is uh, basically it's a, it's a it's an open and anonymous tool for employees to give feedback uh, about their their workplace, um, and the the reason why it came about uh, the, the the kind of the two um, the two angles I took on it was I got to a point at three five two where um, I was managing a lot of people and I felt like I was losing a pulse on. Um, kind of how everyone was thinking, kind of what they thought about organizational direction and kind of how I was, how I was or wasn't leading them well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that, that idea that I was losing that pulse always really bothered me. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always taken great pride in, in uh, listening and, and trying to really understand uh, the motivations and kind of desires of, of anyone that was, that was, um, reporting to me. Um, and then on the flip side of it, um, since I was managing so much, I wasn't getting my hands dirty. Uh, my strategy was always through the hands of someone else. And while I, I liked uh, that I could affect uh, or impact multiple projects uh, through others, not being the one to do it uh, I felt I was losing a little bit of an edge. So, so mm-hmm. Frank filled both of those things for me. It was this opportunity with, with my good friend Larry to build a product uh, that helped both of us um, manage our teams better, uh, helped my employees feel like uh, they had an open way to, to voice their concerns without fear of repercussions. You know, there's always that stat that, you know, 75 or 85% of people leave bad managers. I did not want to be one of those bad managers. I wanted to right. set up a system um, that if the smallest thing bothered someone, they would have a channel to say it um, before the stacks got too high and, and kind of they felt like they had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, we built Frank. Uh, and so Frank is used by a few companies now. Uh, it, it, it's not something that, well, it's not something that I'm, I'm trying to actively uh, IPO out of or anything like that. It's just, it's this, it's this sand, uh, sandbox for me um, mm-hmm. to do product development myself um, on my own uh, and keep my, my skills sharp, but then also have this byproduct, which is a better pulse on the organization and you know, a, a, better, uh, a better relationship with the team um, through their ability to have open and honest um, communication. Yeah, that's huge. Um, can you tell us how you got started with it? What was, you know, you had this idea, and then yeah. what was kind of the first step? You mentioned it's kind of a sandbox project for you, so I'm assuming yeah. you might have got started right away, but maybe there was, uh, you know, an MVP or, or maybe like paper or some yeah. kind of system that maybe preceded the actual application? Yeah, you know, I think to a large degree, Frank has been a great example of maybe not how to approach a product. And so, <laughs> and so I think... Um, I think about how we approach products now uh, at 352 and then how I approached Frank. I, I had this, you know, I, I think this is the challenge. I, I had this, this is my baby. Like, this yep. is my, 
this is my idea and and I, I have this fear of showing people and, and you know and, and it's counter to everything you read you know it's counter to everything you're supposed to do which is you know get it in the hands of users and you know get feedback about it early and and, and we went through a few iterations of what the product um, looks like and how it works before we showed it to anyone mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just and to me I look back at that and and um, I think about it as, you know, that, that's the reality of it. Sometimes you get into something and, and, you know, breaking that barrier of showing it to people is just really difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so as I approach everything else, I kind of reflect on that and say, you know, how am I going to approach it differently? Um, so, you know, with that being said, we knew there was kind of two core, um, two core pieces of functionality we wanted Frank to achieve. Um, we wanted an ability for employees to anonymously start conversations with a manager and for the manager to respond. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the big thing for me. I think there's always been kind of the anonymous suggestion box, um, but there was never really a way for a manager to respond right. and not to respond to like criticize, but to respond to, to better understand the feedback. You know, so, you know, over the years we often got feedback that was very cryptic um, and if we had the ability to ask why they were feeling that way, um, you know, it would provide us the opportunity to get more information, maybe understand something that's happening that we don't have um, visibility to, mm -hmm. or separately educate the employee um, with a, maybe, maybe they don't have the perspective we have on something, and maybe they're not understanding why decisions were made. Uh, and then in turn taking that, idea that maybe that's a shared uh, misperception and, and using it to, in staff meetings and, and you know, uh, helping anyone else that has that, that issue. So, so that was the, the first thing, open uh, two-way communication that's anonymous, um, where the employee knows obviously what manager they're talking to, but the manager has no inclination on which employee they're talking to. And then right. the separate, and then the second was kind of the opposite, where as a leader in the organization or as a manager, um, if I have uh, a concern that maybe you know our, our meetings are boring, or we're doing too many meetings, or there's a there's um, kind of maybe hesitation on a new strategy we're rolling out with, I can just ask the staff, and they can immediately vote. Uh, and and the way Frank works is they get an email, uh, and from they don't even have to log in from that email, they just automatically vote, um, and it. As a leader, it, it lets you get a sense of the direction uh, that people are leaning. Um, so if there's a lot of negativity around the question or kind of uh, people are very neutral on it, uh, maybe you haven't explained yourself enough or maybe their hesitation is a barometer that, that your strategy is flawed. Um, and so it was that, it's, it's those two things that we built initially uh, and, and that's you know, at 352, we've had, I think we've had over a thousand pieces of feedback through it um, over the last year or so that we've been using it. Uh, and so it, the, the staff uses it regularly um, and, and, and likes it. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's actually, from a leadership standpoint, influenced a lot of our decisions. It's helped us over-communicate things that maybe weren't understand uh, or understood clearly enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it, so it's been great. Um, I, to me, it's been successful in the sense of, like, it's helped us run 352 better um, and it's helped us have a better relationship with staff yeah and and that's huge i mean if you can't if you don't know something's wrong right you can't fix it if you can't measure it and, and understand you know and there's a lot of reasons why people might not come to you directly you know some people are more introverted than others and mm -hmm. less outspoken and uh yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense um yeah for sure from from the standpoint where you just built it, right? <laughs> I think yeah. I think that's the uh, that's the creator's uh, um, I don't, a curse, I guess, is just yeah. to like do something, right? And um, I think you know I think that's good every now and then for sure to to just do something, and you can learn from that, right? You can learn, okay, well, I didn't do what what I you know what we normally do or what we do for clients, and yeah. and here's the kind of byproduct of it, and you know just kind of experimenting with you know some of those things there's there's ways to um be lean in in those yep. ways and try to collect feedback and it might be something you're working on at night that you don't have access to a lot of people or 
um, especially you know moonlighting it's I'm sure it would be difficult to do some user interviews and and that sort of thing but yeah for sure I mean you know if, if you think about the reasons why I did Frank uh, that uh, selfishness to say I want to build something and uh, I think I know what the problem was outweighed um, kind of everything I've always you know been taught which is you know uh, talk to the user first about the problem and understand you know mm -hmm. their pain points and kind of what they're looking to achieve um, you know the the byproduct of kind of that reflection on that that was the wrong approach has now resulted in when I build products at 352 I, I have this hard and fast rule that we will not spend any development time building something that we cannot first start building an audience for um, and why uh, why we've done that is we've said if, if we can't talk to the audience that we're building this product for if we cannot market it or position it um, or position something for this audience they do, if they don't trust us uh, we shouldn't spend uh, the dev cycles and the dev resources um, going down a path that is not going to have um, traction from day one um, and so I think you know what I learned from Frank and what I've tried to um, think about with our internal products is having that gut instinct that there's a problem there but then having the discipline um, to seek evidence or build an audience before uh, you you spend the time building the product yeah that's it's a really good point. I mean, you don't want to start develop, developing something that you can't build an audience for. Um, you know, the biggest, <laughs> I think the biggest reason why startups fail is because they build something that they can't sell. I think, you know, sales and, and building an audience is such a big part of, you know, creating a, a viable and sustainable business that a lot of people think if they build it, people will just use it. But that's, you know, rarely ever the case. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm definitely... Um, I, I've definitely fallen into the, it'll be amazing. And, you know, all you have to do is make an amazing product and everyone will come. And it's just, it's not the reality of it. And it sounds so obvious, but um, it's, it's really easy to fall into your comfort zone of building um, over, you know, talking to people and trying to position your product and getting feedback on it. Right. Yeah, it's it's something you always have to fight and something, you know, we always have to rein in with our clients is, you know, you just want to get going, right? You just want this product out there. And, you know, if you get it out there, that that it's going to be great. But, you know, you really have to just pump the brakes and and have that discipline for the process and discipline, you know, for building that evidence and, and experimenting and trying to learn what you want to learn before you invest all of this time and resource into into building it out. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you have a ton of ideas and, you know, it's the risk of spending all your time building something is obviously building the wrong thing and, and not being able to execute and, and build that next idea or something else that is really going to solve a problem for someone. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, we, we've, we've started to do a bunch of things with Slack and we had started them, um, for, for two reasons, well, honestly, for like one big reason is we just saw all this traction that, that Slack was getting in the, in the market and it just it just felt like for the audience that we we're speaking to, um, the vast majority of them being software teams and scrum masters, um, they were all on Slack or, or, using, mm -hmm. um, or, or using Slack at their organization. And so we started to take some small bets um, to where we could build something very lean after seeing some pain points that um, an audience that we were part of was experiencing. Um, and so we, we, we built a couple small little Slack bots um, just to f understand what's it, what is it like working with a Slack API and kind of the, the you know, what's the, what's the amount of risk um, with building those and how, you know, what's the best way to approach it. Anyway, so, so we built a couple. We built this one called Praisley, and we built this one called Lunchbox. And, and Praisley, it's around this idea that, um, you know, we want people to feel appreciation in the workplace. We want other people to praise each other. Um, and honestly, the exposure of that praise happening through Slack is, is very valuable to us. You know, we're, we're, you know I would assume uh, that Slack is 
in the top two of apps that we use per day individually at the organization. It's all the communication happens through there. Um, all our clients are in our Slack instances and individual mm -hmm. channels. Um, so everything really is happening through Slack. And I know Slack's big um, original goal is to, to replace emails. And, and for us, um, whether it's Basecamp or emails, it, it's become the central source of communication. Um, and so we, we wanted the praise to happen through there, and, and we thought, okay, let's, we see this pain point. Our, our teams are saying there's no good way to do it, um, and so we built Praisely, um, which is in the, the Slack marketplace, and something you could download. It's completely free if you want to try it out on your Slack instance. Um, and then another one we built is this thing called Lunchbox, um, and Lunchbox was uh, something we built earlier this year where we saw teams saying, uh, you know, 352 has, these th has three offices. We have Gainesville, uh, we're originally founded, and then we also have Tampa and Atlanta, where I'm at. Um, and across all three offices in Slack, you could see, like, teams were saying, hey, where are we going for lunch today? And, and they put up a couple choices, and um, people say, yeah, that one sounds good. And, and um, so we saw this pain point, and so we built Lunchbox uh, to help, you know, teams organize uh, going out together and picking a, a you vote on where you're going to go eat and, and mm -hmm. uh, you all go. Uh, and, and what's interesting about lunch is uh, it's now used by a, a thousand different Slack teams. Um, I think we I think we're right around 1,100 Slack teams have installed uh, Lunchbox and we're doing a, a, a big update of it to leverage some of the newer things in Slack. Um, but you know this ability to see a pain um, and be part of the audience and then building something small that helps us understand how Slack works, but then also solves this pain point for us, um, has been pretty valuable. Um, so connecting those dots back to our, our bigger products, uh, where we want to leverage Slack and uh, leverage it for the audiences that, that we're already part of and that are using our products, um, has been pretty valuable to us and kind of just informing on the best way to approach it and, and make Slack part of our, our thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I've always seen the Slack platform is, um, you know, <laughs> um, like you said, replacing email, but it, it does so much more. It augments so many more different processes. And, yeah. um, you know, I think the interesting thing about it for me is is we're borderline, you know, we're going from like machine learning, AI, where the interface is text and that's what the Slack bot is. So, you know, just kind of reinforcing that, you know, your messaging and, and what you do, um, you know, how you communicate with customers is such a big part of the user experience that, mm -hmm. you know, Slack is essentially just messages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Slack, uh, like lately, they've been positioning um, a lot of their messaging to around this idea that Slack is an operating system. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the API stuff they've been doing lately is around interface um, and um, allowing more complicated interactions to happen all through Slack. Um, and so whether you like Slack or hate Slack, um, this idea that... Uh, it can be the central source of interactions and communications and do more than just um, text messages or, or just text-based messages back and forth uh, mm -hmm. is really interesting. And, um, you know, the, the, they seem to have figured out something very powerful, um, the combination of those rich interactions plus um, it being a communication system. Yeah. There, so there's been, you know, kind of some concern and chatter in the industry about the pros and cons of slack um you know using that for your team do you have any advice for businesses that use it you know startups product teams um yeah any advice to stay focused and, and eliminate some of those distractions that might come from it if if you think of slack like an operating system like they want you to but but if you start to use it you'll i think you'll see it more and more um, or if you've been using it for a while, I, I think you can see as interactions get more rich, it, it could be an operating system or thought about as an operating system. If, if you think about it that way, um, you, you also have to be cognizant of um, on an individual level how you interact with it has to be adjusted. Um, and so I think the default experience of Slack um, is very much relative to um, the lowest common denominator with, with using it. So if you have someone on there that's, constantly blowing up a channel, dropping gifts in, like your, and if you're not like into that, your perception of it um, could be negative. Um, but right. I think that, that, I think that is not necessarily the end all because um, you get to tweak the experience, you get to 
set your own notifications and mute channels and, and be part of or not part of different channels, I think you get to control that. And so like you would with your phone, where you say, you know what, I want to get notifications from this app versus that app, or I want to set up do not disturb from these times, like your own individual preferences, you adjust your phone's OS, I, I think you need to look at Slack that way. Um, and so I think, you know, organizations that are thinking about adopting Slack um, and get the sense that it's just this, you know, uh, uh, fire hose of stuff mm -hmm. um, really uh, needs to take a step back and understand like each individual gets to make it their own. But then on top of that, the interactions that can happen through Slack for your organization, the custom interactions, that's really powerful. Um, and so I know Slack has been pushing a lot on like these custom workflows and um, getting it more in the enterprise. But if you think about it from like a software development angle, if you want to like get a new GitHub repo launched and um, like maybe that's a really ex basic example, but you have to go to an owner or an admin on the GitHub account and ask them to, to launch it. But if the owner or admin uh, has confidence that they can build a workflow to where you could do that, you could just mm -hmm. run a command in Slack to say, you know, GitHub build new repo and with this name, and it will just go and do it. Um, and so I think at a certain level, organizations that think about the interactions and the integrations that you can have with Slack um, will really see through the noise that it could create um, and understand that it, it, it can be a central source of um, productivity for your organization if you customize it mm -hmm. to be that way. Yeah, I think one, one thing um, Slack may be able to do a little bit better is just those, you know, we talked about notifications or emails and stuff. You know, something that, that they communicate out to people that, hey, you can actually customize these certain things. Or did you know you can do all of this, you know, with Slack, um, you know, yeah. kind of prompting people as they use it so that they know that this isn't just the default. Yeah. And, and I know they do some of that, but, you know, I would like to see more of that, uh, you know, for me personally. Oh, um, I've, I've, I've ebbed and flowed through this. Like, I've, I, at one point I had do not disturb set for basically 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> and, and I've, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I hate notifications. Like my phone, I have like, I think two apps that are, is allow, are allowed to show notifications. And I hate this idea that something can pull me out of what I'm working on or what I'm trying to focus on. And so I think yeah. for a lot of people, uh, that's their experience early with Slack is like, this thing's just this, this fountain of information and just spewing information and, and spewing um, you know, trying to grab my attention. Um, but again, that just comes down to, you know, breaking through that and setting it up for yourself and getting it to a point where you can do your work and, um, leverage this great, great tool. Yeah, definitely. Um, Sticker Mule put out a, a really good article about, you know, their guide to Slack and how mm -hmm. they use it. And, uh, like the, you know, the, we, we've, the rules. Yeah, the rules of, of kind of, you know, what happens. I think it's easy to have conversations, you know, off of Slack, right, in the hallway about, hey, there's a certain to-do or, hey, mm -hmm. remind you to do this. But I think they're just good outlines of, you know, how you should, you know, manage projects or things that, that come up that need to be added. Um, I think the biggest one that they made is just, you know, having an integration with, with your task manager app, like Trello, Asano, uh, Asana, Pivotal Tracker, you know, whatever you use and, and not assigning someone something in Slack in a conversation, but just go ahead and creating a card. And that's one of those integrations, like you mentioned before, that you can just create a card right from Slack, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the Trello board you want. And that really simplifies some of that. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's very neat. I'm, I'm excited to see where they go. Um, it's just... You know, it's, it's like intercom, like we talked about earlier. You know, on the surface, if you don't dig into it and, and put the effort into it, um, it's just going to look like a chat tool. Um, mm -hmm. And with Slack, it's just going to look like a source of distraction. Um, but I think organizations that spend the time to really understand intercom or really understand Slack can realize that these tools are really powerful when customized for kind of your individual preferences and also the preferences of the organization. Yeah. Um, one of the other Slack um, 
Slack bots that we use is called Tatsu, and that basically runs our daily standups. Mm, awesome. um, so every day, every day at like eight fifteen, it'll it'll ping, you know, the first person, and then they can go, you know, if they, if they don't respond, it automatically skips to the next person. Um, I actually have um, Jamie Wright, who's uh, one of the creators of Tatsu. He's coming on the show in a couple of weeks. But um, are there any other Slack bots or Slack tools that you guys integrate with for your product teams or um, your customers? Uh. There's, there's a, you know, from a DevOps standpoint, I've, I've, I've found a lot of the powerful bots to be on that side of it. Um, so, uh, server status, um, you know, that kind of stuff, getting information that hits the entire team at once, and you can, mm -hmm. and have a conversation about it, um, you know, is really interesting. Uh, it, the intercom bot, the intercom integration is really interesting. So these are more just funneling those notifications into Slack and then that hitting the right team. Um, I, I think in, in years past, you'd get an email and you wouldn't have a, a mechanism to have a conversation around it. That Now that you know the support tickets and kind of the, the server status, all that, that hits the right group of people and that group can have a conversation in real time. I, I found those to be really powerful use cases um, uh, for Slack. Um, you know, the Jira integration or the Trello integration, you know, those are great because again, you could have a conversation about it and say, okay, we need to add a story about that, and you could just do that all um, through Slack. Uh, so yeah, I mean, th there's a there's there's a ton of bots uh, that are out there, and um, understanding what works best for your organization is is hard, um, but but I think it's ultra powerful. Mm -hmm. Any plans to make Frank uh, a Slack bot integration? I think so. Um, I think we will. Uh, there's a couple people, uh, Office Vibe and um, a couple other startups that are in a similar space have uh, their own bots uh, that do something similar. Um, we've always talked about it. You know, uh, again, I think if it was our full-time gig, uh, it would have already happened. But you know, balancing where we put our effort uh, for Frank is, is really important because we just don't have that much time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's always tough as someone who's you know you guys have a consultancy and then you also have a product team that's focused on certain things and right and then you are, obviously Frank is something you're doing outside of that yeah. um, on your own with Larry I believe it was yeah um, so that's <laughs> you know a lot to uh, to focus your attention on yeah um, yeah so as we as we kind of start to finish up here um, you know I think design plays a big role but what what uh, what role do you think design has in business success? You know, on and on and offline, right? In technology and, and, and out of technology. Uh, when I hear nowadays, when I hear design and, and think about it relative to business, um, and, and kind of when I talk to the designers at Three Five Two or just talk to designers in general, I like for them to look at design. In, in terms of what is the tightest loop on a piece of functionality I can design that achieves kind of what the end user wants. Um, so I, I, think, I think often it's really low cost for us to over-design. Um, you know, you're just moving things around in Sketch or, or Photoshop or whatever, and you, know, you want to be creative and, and wow people um, with the look of something. But when I look at design, I, I you know, you you talked earlier about jobs to be done, jobs to be done, and I think that as a designer, um, learning that early, really thinking about what the end user is trying to accomplish and designing to that, mm -hmm. should be your barometer for success on a design. Um, and right. and I, I I worry that right now we have Dribble and Instagram and and, and Behance where we're all looking to see how many likes it got. Um, and we're all looking to see kind of like how pretty we can make it. Um, but the reality of it is, is the end user's interaction with it um, will make or break uh, the, the goal or the business uh, that, that is leveraging it. So um, to me, for design, it, it's, it's really thinking about what does the end user want to accomplish and then seeking the feedback um, to, to, to see if, it, if, it, if it's working. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the last thing you want to do is, is launch it and then, you know, put your head in the sand on whether it works or doesn't work. Um, 
you know, that, that, that to me is the difference between designers that are earlier in their career and, and designers that have matured and have become lead and, and kind of senior designers. The lead for me is not timing. The lead to me with getting the title of a lead designer is having the humility um, to seek feedback and make your design better through the eyes of who, who's ever using it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's so funny how many times like, you know, we work with corporations and I'm, I'm sure you guys do as well, but you go into something and you say, you guys have used this for, you know, for five, 10 years and it looks pretty awful. Right. Yeah. But it, it's solving that main problem. You know, it's, it's getting the user to that outcome that they want, you know, and, and I think users are a lot more open to using products that solve a problem that are ugly than problems that are pretty that don't do anything for them. <laughs> Yeah, and that's sure. where you see a lot of a lot of people, uh, you know, falter and fail. And you know, hey, it looks great, but it it doesn't help them out in any way. It doesn't provide oh, yeah. value. I think as a designer, you'll you'll often salivate at that project where it just looks so bad, and and, and visually, you know, or aesthetically, you know that 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 it could be so much better. Um, but but you get lost in the I can make this look so much better, mm -hmm. um, and you and you sort of forget about the well, is it going to work uh, more effectively for the end user? Um, or how how am I going to improve that aspect of it? Um, you know that that is something you just cannot lose sight of. Right. Um, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are looking to launch their first business, whether that's um, in software or uh, physical product? Yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, and you alluded to to jobs to be done, and, and I talked about like kind of value proposition design. Uh, and then, you know, so, so maybe three things, you know, I think uh, understanding what your audience is looking to accomplish should be critical to what you build. Um, you know, you yourself experiencing a pain point, um, believe it or not, uh, might not be what everyone experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and so understanding um, kind of the pains and gains of the audience that you're ultimately trying to reach um, should be critical to understanding what you build and, and why you're building um, your product. Um, and then the third thing would be ultimately seek and build trust with that audience. Um, you don't want to build a product to no one. Like, you don't want to launch to no one. Um, so putting the effort in early um, to build an audience and build trust uh, and build um, trust in the subject that you're looking to pursue uh, is always fruitful um, and I think a lot of people get caught up in this idea of well I can only start my marketing once the product is launched um, right. and, and I think that's so short-sighted uh, I, I think uh, there are pains and gains that the audience you're looking to accomplish experience regardless of whether your product ever hits market and those are all things that you can start building trust on um, and those are all things that you can have in, uh, that will allow you to have interactions with those audiences to better inform your product. Um, and so, for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, don't hold your product so tight to your chest um, that you're scared to hear what's going to make it better. Mm -hmm. Do you have any? So you mentioned kind of building an audience, and um, you know that's one of the things that that you've learned, and that you know we try to do as well. But is there something that um, a few key tips on, on building an audience and building that trust. Um, yeah. You know, before you build, doing that customer development before you actually develop the product. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think uh, if you're looking to have like a no BS approach to this, I would read anything uh, from Amy Hoy and, and Alex Hillman um, on Unicorn Free and, and 30 by 500. Um, their, their products are typically... Um, or their mentality is typically geared towards kind of people bootstrapping or individuals looking to bootstrap. But I think there's a great relevance to um, corporations and, and larger teams trying to build a product. Um, and so their big thing is, you know, before understanding what you need to build, you have to understand what are the needs, wants, uh, and, and kind of what the audience buys. Mm -hmm. um, and then leveraging those things to, to better understand um, what um, small bits of value uh, you could put out to the market. Um, and so if you're, if, if you're looking to do any audience building or understanding how you can 
um, speak to your audience, that's where I would start. I would start with unicornfree.com and, and kind of Amy Hoy uh, and, and everything she writes. I, 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 I'm a big believer in her mentality to building product. Perfect. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Pete. This has been great so far just to awesome. uh, learn more about you, learn about um, you know the products and stuff that you're building, how you guys build products. Uh, where can people follow you and learn more about what you do and, and stay updated? Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this too. Um, if, if you're interested in uh, learning more about me, I'm, I'm pretty much Pete Bernardo on like every service um, and probably the best way is through Twitter. Um, so it's uh, Pete and then it's B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O. Um, and uh, during college football season, I will be talking a lot about the Miami Hurricanes, so deal with it. <laughs> um, but overall, I just, I, I, I'll retweet things that are interesting to me from a product perspective and um, kind of put some stuff out there that I think are relative to um, people that are interested in building product and kind of thinking about uh, design and user experience of products. Sounds great. Thanks again, Pete. Yeah, it's been awesome, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, talk to you later. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to Seaworthy. Connect with us on Twitter at SeaworthyFM. And make sure to subscribe, ask questions, and leave feedback on the Remarks app. We'll see you again in two weeks.